Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of May 2020, and this is episode 162. On today's podcast, Kate Immey, Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Texas, talks about her recent book, Faithful Fighters. Her book explores the Indian Army's attempts to racialize and militarize the South Asian identities of its multiracial, multilinguistic and multi-faith soldiery to secure their loyalty, cooperation and support before and during the Great War. I spoke to Kate using the marvels of modern technology from her home in North Texas. Kate, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Of course. Um, thank you so much for having me. I know that podcasts are, are really doing a heavy uh, load for a lot of people right now. So I appreciate you having me on and uh, talking with me about my work. So I became interested in uh, the Indian Army and the First World War through a kind of different path. Um, so I was first really interested in the interwar period, in particular because I read a lot of interwar novels, um, especially people like Somerset Mom. And I happened to be simultaneously taking some university classes on Buddhism. And so I was really struck by some of the thematic overlap that I saw in my classes on Buddhism and my reading of interwar British novels. And so I said, okay, there's something there. There's this period of colonialism that's happening. Um, and then, of course, there's the profound impact of the First World War and how that makes people think differently about their place in the world, their understanding of empire and all these really interesting and thorny questions. So that was a, one starting point for me. Um, another starting point was that I was absolutely certain that I would not be writing about militaries or war. <laughs> and that's rooted in part um, in my own history, which is that uh, my first college experience was at the U.S. Air Force Academy, actually. And. And I ended up not staying and pursuing, you know, not pursuing um, a career in the U.S. military. And so once I went on an academic track, I was definitely not going to write about the military, uh, became very interested in intellectuals and interwar culture. And then over time, I found uh, several cases of Indian Army officers who seemed to be having genuine, you know, cultural exchanges and were profoundly shaped not only by their experience of their First World War, but also their First World War service in the Indian Army in particular and their exposure to Indian soldiers. Um, and I found a couple of soldiers who were really into yoga and then also really into fascism. And I'm like, okay, that's not two things things that normally get put together <laughs> in U.S. conversations, because there's usually a, a sort of leftist counterculture that people associate with yoga, um, whereas, uh, you know, fascism very much on the far right. So I said, all right, what's going on in the Indian Army? What's going on in the First World War that makes these unexpected intercultural moments possible? So why do you think your book is important? So my book is important because it brings together two conversations that are usually in isolation from one another. One is uh, a history of the military, a history of the First World War. 
and particularly a, a history of colonial service in the First World War, which is usually on one side. And then on the other side, we have a history of anti-colonialism in the British Empire, in India in particular. And I find that usually these are two separate conversations. Um, there have been some exceptions, especially recently. You have people like Gajendra Singh, Maya Ramnath, looking at the connections between the First World War and uh, Indian anti-colonialism. Uh, but usually these are restricted to the First World War period alone. So my work not only brings these two different conversations together, but also provides a wider frame uh, to suggest that the debates about anti-colonialism that we see happening in the First World War and its aftermath actually have a longer genealogy in the particular institution of the Indian Army uh, in the 20th century, where we see a tremendous amount of not only global service uh, around the world in the First World War, but also a lot of questions and wrestling with what identity means and what it means to be a colonial soldier in the British Empire at a time when a lot of civilians are saying, hey, now is the time to break free um, and to not serve the empire. And so soldiers are wrestling with these two questions simultaneously. And my book offers a unique insight by saying that the question of faith, the, the question of what it means to be a martial man um, is taken up by both Indian anti-colonial activists and the Indian army, sort of wrestling over the loyalties of soldiers, um, particularly uh, using faith as a battle ground. Your book examines how the Indian Army sought to control and shape the identities of its soldier. Could you start by telling us what exactly you mean by identities? Sure. Um, so there's been a, a really nice um, and long-standing conversation about the Indian Army, the recruiting policies and strategies. Uh, and in particular, if anybody knows anything about the Indian Army, they usually know about the martial races recruiting strategy and how this was a way to streamline recruitment um, and to make sure that the only people coming into the army were those who would be the best soldiers and who would be least likely to rebel. And so over the course of the 19th century, um, as is well known, there was a, a kind of consolidation of both pre-British thinking about the military, pre-British martial cultures across South Asia that are influencing what it means to be a good soldier. And then British officers kind of changing and adapting what they think makes a good soldier, particularly after canonical events like the Rebellion of 1857 or uh, the Anglo-Afghan Wars. And so religion, I think, is something that is a recurring feature. Now, of course, the, the martial races have a pretty wide frame of what identity means. You know, it's recruitment based not only on faith, but also on region of origin, on ethnicity, on height, on weight. There's, and you know, if your father was a soldier, there's all sorts of things that go into determining who gets to be considered a martial race and who doesn't. And then, of course, this is changing a lot over time, depending on the needs and the perceptions of, of very various military officers. For me, the question of what is religion is something that I think we need to really dig into a bit more as historians. Um, there's a lot of lively debate in religious studies and anthropology 
about whether or not the term religion can be applied to belief systems like Islam or, you know, Hinduism has become this umbrella term uh, that actually encapsulates a, a wide diversity of different beliefs and practices, and that the word religion itself uh, has these kind of colonial legacies, this kind of colonial baggage, which tries to make concrete and fixed what is actually quite diverse and plural, um, that it doesn't just pertain to, you know, what you believe about the afterlife, that it actually is about everyday codes of conduct, how you should eat, how you should dress, who you should talk to, which is very material. And so my work wrestles with this question of identity. What does it mean to have an identity that's being used and defined by the military in certain ways? And then what does it mean to wrestle with an identity that your home community might interpret or understand differently. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the subject, could we start by talking about the Indian Army and its background, and what exactly was it? So the Indian Army is a really interesting and always uh, throughout the colonial period, ever evolving as an institution. So its origins were in the East India Company, um, during which time uh, there were multiple branches, uh, multiple actual separate armies in various regions that the East India Company was trying to consolidate its power over uh, starting in the 18th century. That's when the recruitment of Indian soldiers began. Um, you know, and largely in that period, the, the fear was the French, the French presence in South Asia and trying to combat that. Although, of course, over time, these East India Company forces become a tool of conquest, uh, of competing with South Asian cultures, martial cultures, political entities like the Mughal Empire, uh, the Khalsa Sikh Empire, uh, the Marathas and various communities. Um, so the Indian Army had its origins in these East India Company forces, which were very localized, very regional. And then by the 19th century, we see a lot of consolidation. We see the hardening of this kind of martial races recruiting, where there's a, a growing preference for men from certain regions, from certain communities. And this will continue to crystallize into the late 19th century and then into the early 20th century when the formerly regional forces are now consolidated um, under a single umbrella. So rather than being the Bengal army or the Madras army or the Bombay army, you know, it's now just one single Indian army, which is another unique feature of this 20th century period, um, which also is really interesting for, uh, for my book because, you know, at this moment that they're going to global war, that Indian anti-colonial activism is increasing, there's this tension in the in the Indian army, which is to not want to acknowledge that India is a single entity, that India can be a single country, because that would sort of feed into anti-colonial and especially Indian nationalist critiques of the military, um, while also, you know, creating this solid entity, this single entity of an Indian army, which seems to suggest that, yes, there can be a single India with a single army um, that can be centralized. Now, the Indian Army itself was an inc incredibly complex organisation um, and it had diverse ethnic and religious identities within it. Could you tell us about the state of the Indian Army in, the, in this sort of sense just before the outbreak of war in 1914? Of course. Uh, so the Indian Army is always in flux. There's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of disagreements and differences of opinions between uh, civilian leadership and military leadership, leadership that's based in India, leadership 
versus leadership that's based in London. And so that contributes to a lot of uncertainty institutionally about whether or not the Indian Army um, should be focused on the internal defense of India, for example, or whether it should be considered a force that can be sent overseas. And so this is a conversation that is very much still active when war breaks out in 1914. And one of the things that I talk about in my book is how these questions of identity are actually playing directly into decisions about which soldiers get sent overseas and which do not. Uh, so, for example, I, I discuss um, the, the case of Nepali soldiers uh, recruited as Gurkhas. In their case, they had been surveying overseas for decades. They had been surveying in the Mediterranean. They had served in China, you know, really all over the world where British presence was felt. And yet there was this discussion and debate between the Indian Army, the government of India, and the Nepali government, the Nepalese government, about whether or not it was appropriate for these soldiers to be serving overseas. And so discussions of religion and identity come into play because the issue of crossing the Kalapani, the, the dark waters of the ocean, um, is something that usually high caste Hindus would adhere to. But by the 20th century, it has a, a much wider cultural resonance. And there's uh, a more general question uh, among a lot of South Asians, not just Hindu, but also in the case of a lot of Nepalese Buddhist or uh, even Muslim soldiers sometimes make this critique as well uh, about whether or not it's worth the risk of crossing the oceans to serve in the military, um, and especially for a colonial military. And so for Nepalese who are in theory an independent nation state and these uh, recruited Gurkha soldiers, loyal to this independent nation state, there's a lot of um, con confusion and conversation about whether it's appropriate for these soldiers to serve overseas at all. And if they do, what kind of steps should be taken when they return to ensure that they haven't lost their caste status, that they haven't betrayed uh, their bonds to their local communities. And this is a conversation that really intensifies in 1913 and 1914. So really right up to the moment that, you know, all of a sudden, um, Britain and its entire empire are at war. And so the, the kind of hasty conclusion that they come to is, all right, well, the way we're going to solve this is have a, a purification ceremony for every single Nepali soldier, no matter what their identity is, no matter what their belief system is, before they return to Nepal, they need to go through a purification ceremony. And this is what makes it possible for Nepali soldiers to serve in such large numbers overseas. So right up into 1914, these questions of identity are having institutional resonance uh, that affects who gets to serve where, and actually is part of the reason why Nepali Gurkha soldiers are relied on so heavily because there was this pre-existing conversation and a hastily uh, thrown together conclusion. Whereas Indian Hindus, who in theory could have been put in the same category um, and could have participated in the same ceremony are usually in the First World War period considered uh, too prejudiced to, to serve overseas. There hasn't been a pre-existing conversation about whether or not these ceremonies would apply to them or not. And so a lot of uh, especially high caste Hindus are actually uh, pulled out of service because of uh, these institutional conversations. Um, so, so what what um, what other um, ethnic and religious groups did the um, Indian Army recruit from, and why did they choose these specific um, groups? 
Yeah, of course. So the Indian army uh, changes over time in terms of who they believe are the best soldiers. So in the East India Company period, uh, one of the soldiers, the groups of soldiers that East India Company officials felt most confident about recruiting were uh, Brahmin soldiers, high caste Brahmin soldiers, as well as Rajputs uh, from Western India. And part of the reason that they really relied on these soldiers was because they had served, in some cases, the Mughal Empire or other pre-British um, colonial um, and pre-colonial kingdoms and entities. And so initially, British leaders start recruiting them and they see things like, you know, really stringent diets as a way to protect soldiers' health when they serve overseas or in rugged conditions, which is, of course, normal for for all soldiers. Over time, these attitudes change, you know, especially as we see a higher uh, European evangelical and medical presence in India in the 19th century. Um, and then especially after the rebellion of 1857, that kind of solidifies for a lot of British leaders who the best soldiers are. And so quite famously, after 1857, uh, Sikhs uh, recruited from Punjab and then Nepali Gurkhas, uh, who had played a large role in the rebellion of 1857, are recruited heavily. This is solidified by um, General Roberts in the period of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. And this creates a conversation that these are two of the, the most loyal, the most steadfast communities. And this is for a whole host of reasons. You know, one is the historic ties to these 19th century conflicts. But then there's also a kind of discursive rhetoric that goes into defining these men as martial. Um, so in the case of Nepali Gurkhas, the argument was that they were resistant to the Indian caste system, and therefore they could serve anywhere, they didn't care about food, and they were pro-British and anti-Indian, which made them, you know, good-hearted and liked their British officers. Um, and so those are the, the types of things you hear about, as well as uh, an emphasis on physical features. So the argument for Nepalis was that they were sort of strong and sturdy, even if they weren't as, you know, tall as other men, that they were nonetheless able to hold up against rigorous environments. Uh, with Sikh soldiers, especially Sikhs recruited from Punjab, the argument is similar. You have the historic ties to the 19th century conflicts, uh, but then you also have a sense that Punjabi soldiers generally are quite strong, quite tall, and uh, British leaders at the time will equate this to their wheat-based diet. Um, and then there's also, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, a lot of British Orientalists, uh, Max McAuliffe in particular, who will say that the belief system of the Sikhs is actually quite conducive to military service. So this is rooted in the Khalsa Sikh community, the warrior fraternity, uh, which has the five markers of identity that mark Khalsa Sikhs who are initiated into this warrior fraternity. Um, and the emphasis for people like McAuliffe is that uh, military service is part of this identity and therefore makes Sikhs good soldiers. Um, this will extend to other communities as well. And there will be a similar set of you know, changing uh, expectations for why soldiers become uh, 
uh, good for the army. So Rajputs will be another community that have this high reputation. Uh, Patans from northwestern India and the borders with Afghanistan will be perceived as a group that has a, a high uh, success rate in the Indian army. And this is also quite discursively constructed. The idea is that they, uh, because they live in a, in a very difficult terrain, this makes them hardy and strong. Um, and then there's also a kind of ambivalence with uh, Muslim soldiers more generally. So soldiers from Punjab tend to be the preferred community across religious lines. Um, and so a lot of Punjabi Muslims will be recruited as well as Punjabi Sikhs. Um, and the idea there is that while Punjabi Muslims are Muslim in British minds at the time, um, and certainly you know not universally true, but in the case of many British officers, Punjabi Muslims are less you know fervent in their belief systems. Um, and so while you have groups like Patans from no the northwestern borders who are sometimes in the minds of some British officers, you know quite extreme in their interpretations of their faith. Uh, you also get a kind of slippery slope about, you know, what does it mean to be Muslim? Can uh, Islam and the martial qualities perceived in Muslims be useful, but also can it be dangerous? Um, so those are some of the, the main groups that are recruited in this period. Uh, but again, it's always changing. And, you know, who gets to be considered martial is never really a, a stable category. It's something that that changes over time. So why and how did the Indian Army seek to control the identities of its multiracial, multilinguistic and multi-faith soldiery? So this is a, a relatively uh, straightforward answer, I think, um, in that it's very normal for a, a military to want to keep its soldiers disciplined and happy to prevent them from rebelling. Um, and similarly for governments generally, and I think colonial governments in particular, to want to have an army that will facilitate rule and governance. Um, and so in the minds of British officials, uh, for the most part, and again, there are exceptions, um, in the 19th and, and 20th centuries, the underlying assumption is that faith is integral to keeping soldiers disciplined and happy. There's this sense that an Indian is inherently religious, and this is a, you know, a pretty widespread idea in a lot of uh, in the minds of a lot of British people in this period. Um, and so if there's this underlying assumption that Indians are inherently religious, then religion, you know, again, this kind of slippery category is the most important thing to keep soldiers disciplined, loyal and happy. And so the military wants to control that, wants to ensure that soldiers are, um, you know, in control and stable and can be controlled. And so this is the main reason that these military forces want to control and have a stake in defining these soldiers' identities. And how did the soldiers react to these attempts by the Indian, Indian army authorities to control their identities? Soldiers react in a whole host of different ways, um, you know, as we would expect uh, with all people having all sorts of, of diverse experiences. So some soldiers will be happy, you know, they will say, okay, my father served, his father served. These recruiting officers are saying, hey, you are a Khalsa Sikh man, and if you want to honor your father's service and your grandfather's service, and then, you know, even further back, the service of your more, uh, you know, your, your longer descendant uh, ancestors, 
then the best way to do that is in British service because we will honor, we will uh, preserve your customs. We will give further opportunities for you to perform your belief system. So in the example of Khalsa Sikhs, they will be recruited. And if they aren't wearing the five markers of Khalsa identity, in some cases, they'll be given uh, courses of instruction uh, to learn what it means to be a Khalsa Sikh. In some cases, they will be initiated into the Khalsa warrior fraternity after they've joined the army. And the army will be a space where they can exercise and perform this kind of British Indian uh, hybrid version of, of identity, which nonetheless does feel uh, like a genuine, <clears throat> excuse me, genuine reflection of their belief system and a way of honoring their family's heritage. So some soldiers will have that response and say, yeah, this makes sense based on what my family has told me. This makes sense. And the British seem to be doing a good job of letting us do things to exercise our faith. You know, in some cases, there will be efforts to actually pay for Muslim soldiers to perform the Hajj pilgrimage. This will happen uh, immediately after the First World War. So for some soldiers, it makes sense. You know, you join military service and you get these perks. Other soldiers will have other responses, um, which, of course, we might anticipate. Some are, are very hostile and resistant to British efforts to control their identities. So I mentioned um, the case of Nepali Gurkhas who serve in the First World War. Many of these soldiers will say, I'm not a Hindu. I am not a high caste Hindu. I don't belong to the community that believes in the Kalapani, you know, the, the Black Waters, or in the, the mandate that we need to perform a ceremony when we return. I just want to go home and I'm injured. So I want to do that as quickly as possible. So in those cases, soldiers will be quite resistant to British efforts to control their identities, quite hostile, in fact. Um, some will rebel, some will petition. Um, in the case of you know, Muslim soldiers, we, we especially see that, that kind of tension and ambivalence during the First World War. Quite famously, there was within the Ottoman Empire a declaration of jihad, uh, which has you know, a really complex and rich history that I won't go into now. Um, but jihad had all sorts of meanings that also changed over time. And so some Muslims will will be afraid and they'll think, am I being a, a bad Muslim if I go to, you know, to serve the British Empire against the Ottomans, who are also Muslim? You know, am I being a bad Muslim by going and fighting other Muslims? However, over time, British leaders will realize, hey, we can actually lean into the fact that our soldiers are fighting in Muslim lands. Um, we can, you know, give them permission, for example, to guard Muslim holy sites. Uh, or, as I mentioned, you know, we can give them the, the opportunity to undertake the Hajj pilgrimage. And so in this way, we can try to make their military service into something uh, advantageous to their beliefs rather than a challenge to it. Um, but of course, you'll see these kinds of reactions on both sides. Some soldiers will say, yes, this honors my military service. This honors my family's heritage. Other soldiers will say, this goes too far, and now I understand those nationalist or anti-colonial critiques, which says uh, that the British are trying to divide us internally. Now, we come to the First World War, and the Indian armies deployed across the globe in West, in, on the Western Front, Africa and the Middle East. What is the impact of soldiers' experience uh, in this service across the various parts of the globe? What, what impact does this have on their identities? It has a lot of... Uh, resonances for soldiers' identities. So 
In some cases, soldiers who serve in France will be really surprised to see that uh, French civilians treat them quite well, that they're perfectly happy with Indian soldiers socializing with their daughters, you know, in some cases having sexual relationships, which seems quite at odds with the lived reality in colonial India, where racial hierarchy uh, was quite entrenched by the 20th century. And so that will have uh, an interesting role in shaping these soldiers' identities, which says, okay, let's question these racial hierarchies, let's question these these racial bars. Um, and then, of course, we also see a, a lot of implications religiously as well. So um, the Declaration of Jihad will make some soldiers, and I think especially soldiers who are serving in France, look to one another and say, wow, why are we fighting on the other side of the earth with, you know, with an empire that's fighting the Ottomans? And how can we use our, you know, dislocation from our homes to define for ourselves what it means to be a, a Muslim and perhaps to resist British mandates about that. Interestingly, we also see, um, you know, in addition to this kind of, you know, latently anti-colonial response, we see some soldiers whose exposure to Muslims from around the world, for example, changing their understanding about what it means to be a Muslim. Um, and so you have some Indian soldiers who will serve in Egypt, who will look around, you know, in this war-torn, you know, heavily occupied, full of lots of soldiers from around the, the globe, and see prostitution. They will see, um, you know, it, Muslims who are Egyptian, who are not keeping the fast of Ramadan, who don't seem to be living up to uh, what these Indian soldiers think a, a proper Muslim should. And so this will, for some, create a, a more hardened identity of, okay, I'm a good Muslim, and these Egyptians are bad Muslims. So perhaps it's because of my service to the British that I'm able to exercise good conduct, and that perhaps the British should, in fact, have greater presence in Egypt to encourage these uh, other Muslims to have, you know, better etiquette, better ways of performing their faith. Um, and this will be really profound when these soldiers move into the lands of the Ottoman Empire, because the, you know, the British and the French quite notoriously will be doing what they can to establish their own presence in this region. And um, yet the holy cities of Mecca and Medina are also uh, controlled by the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. And so some soldiers will, you know, by the late war and post-war period, become sympathetic to the caliphate arguments about, you know, preserving the, the caliphate uh, that the Ottoman Empire had previously controlled. And some soldiers will make the opposite argument and they'll say, okay, I've been in Arabia, or I've been in Mesopotamia, and I've seen how Muslims have been living under the Ottoman Empire. And so I am dissatisfied with, you know, my experience, my exposure to some of these uh, Muslim civilians, you know, in the most difficult wartime conditions. Uh, and they will nonetheless say, you know, maybe British influence here can be a good thing. Um, and so by going around the world, these soldiers are having exposure to all sorts of different soldiers, all sorts of different civilians who have different understandings of what their belief means. And this will profoundly shape how they understand themselves, how they understand the British Empire, and then how they'll negotiate uh, anti-colonial attitudes in the post-war period. So how does the Indian army react to the soldiers reacting to their experience? It reacts in various ways. So one of the most 
um, striking ways that the Indian army will respond will be doing things like leaning into soldiers' grievances, you know, really acknowledging that these soldiers are having a profound um, response to the war and have profound and very genuine concerns about the war, where they're serving, how they're serving. So a a lot of the Indian Army's response will be doing things like, okay, we'll pay for you to go on the Hajj. We will uh, allow you to guard religious sites. That's certainly one response. Uh, Another response will be political, um, which is, okay, we can't ignore any longer that British success in the First World War, you know, could not have happened in various ways without our colonial soldiers. So we want to make promises that we will allow more soldiers to to move up the ranks and even become officers. And so Indianization is really coming, uh, becoming a possibility because of the First World War experience. And so there is a genuine effort to try to make the Indian army better for these soldiers. And this will lead in the interwar period to the building of more military schools, uh, eventually, you know, an Indian military academy by the 1930s. Uh, Before that, the admission of Indian soldiers to Sandhurst. So there are some genuine efforts to try to make good on the promise uh, that a lot of these soldiers are, you know, facing a lot of the, the things that they hoped to experience. But there are other responses as well, which helps to further anti-colonial sentiment. Um, and so in the case of uh, Sikh soldiers, for example, I, I discuss the importance of the kirpan, which is uh, a sword that Sikh soldiers are required to wear as members of the Khalsa Sikh fraternity. So it's one of the five markers of identity. And under the British colonial period, throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th century, these kirpans have been basically made into tokens. So maybe a pin that you wear on your turban, as opposed to an actual sword. And in the lead up to the First World War, there's a lot of controversy about this. A lot of Sikh men will start going in public carrying large swords, uh, which is in fact a violation of the Indian Arms Act. And so eventually, um, British leaders make the decision that, okay, we need to come up with a solution to this because Sikhs are one of the most disproportionately recruited communities in the Indian army, making up about 20% of the army, despite being, you know, 1% of the the population of India as a whole. Um, And so they eventually allow Sikhs to have a kind of exceptional status to carry swords. And this will be really interesting during and after the First World War, because now Sikhs get this exceptional status to carry swords, which starts to have some consequences for other communities, especially as Sikhs start to um, occupy holy spaces, especially in the aftermath of the Emritsar massacre, which happened in a Sikh holy city uh, around the corner from the Sikh golden temple. So Sikh soldiers and civilians will unify to try to occupy holy spaces and regain control of them uh, from leaders who had been appointed by the British colonial state, uh, and and increasingly target holy spaces, particularly those that have either been run by um, religious leaders that were appointed by the British, or in some cases in disputed properties that perhaps had once been 
a mosque, but are now a gudwara, a Sikh holy space. Um, and so this will be yet another complexity that emerges um, in that British leaders will try to make a, a kind of concession, usually missing what the heart of soldiers' grievances really are. You know, usually soldiers' grievances are things like pay and, you know, distance from home and poor treatment. But usually the colonial response, the Indian Army's response, will be, okay, well, we'll make things better for you religiously, which then opens a door for further conflict um, after the war is over. Turning to the sort of longer term impacts of both the Indian Army's attempt to control the identity of its soldiers and also the soldiers' reaction to the Indian Army's um, reaction to their things, what impacts sort of generally arise out of the First World War and show themselves in the interwar period? So in the interwar period, we see uh, just an intensification of militarization in colonial India in general. Um, and there's been you know, a lot of great work about the long-term militarization of colonial India, the long-term use of violence. Uh, people like Kim Wagner, Elizabeth Kolsky, Taylor Sherman uh, have really investigated these questions quite intensively. And yet what we see happening in the Indian Army is a kind of drawing a line in the sand um, where Indian soldiers in the Indian army had been integral to anti-colonial activism prior to the First World War, certainly during the First World War, they had been seen as likely allies that should there be an anti-colonial rebellion like 1857, the army would be integral to that. In the post-World War I period, there's a little bit more ambivalence, especially after the Amritsar massacre and uh, Mohandas Gandhi's emphasis on nonviolence. This will leave a lot of civilians to think, uh, especially in the 1930s, that soldiers are sort of beyond saving, that they have betrayed the nation, that they won't make good allies, that they are too materially concerned to care about civilian grievances. Um, and this is reflected in the fact that, you know, things are in some ways getting better for Indian soldiers. You know, they can train at military colleges. They can train at military academies. They are relatively well off financially, um, especially compared to a lot of civilians. So this will, in the interwar period, create a lot more fracture and division um, between the Indian army and the civilian population more broadly, which will make a lot of Indian civilians feel quite isolated from the civilian population, and in some cases more uh, militaristic in their thinking, more exclusionary in their thinking, uh, which will of course have some really uh, dire consequences long term, especially as soldiers really start to buy into uh, the idea that their faith depends on their military service and the martial deployment of their faith, not only on behalf of the British Empire, but also uh, in some cases against other communities. So we will see an increasing militarization and the equation, the equation of militarization with faith in the interwar period. And finally, Katie, where can people find out more about your research? So my book is available um, in various places. You can go to the Stanford University Press website, um, and buy it from there. There are a few good discount codes available at the moment. Um, and if you want to find out what those are, you can follow me on Twitter um, at KateIme2. Apparently there is another KateIme out there. Um, you can also find it at major retailers uh, like Barnes & Noble, Waterstone, and Amazon.
Katie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.